Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 73, Soso, the Young Stalin. Last time, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin led the Bolsheviks through the third and most difficult crisis of the post-revolutionary era by installing the NEP, or New Economic Policy, into Russia's economy. But before he could see it to the end, he died, the aftermath of three strokes. He also foresaw the future, the future with a man he did not trust anymore with his glorious revolution, Joseph Stalin. Before we get into the early life of Stalin, I need to clarify things a bit, or rather define what constitutes a Russian ruler in the time of the early USSR. Under Lenin, he officially took control of the government on December 30, 1922, as the chairman of the Council of People's Commissars, or Savnorkom. Ideologically, he was only the leader if the council would have him. Realistically, Lenin had an iron grip on the council, especially after the creation of the Cheka, and later the GPU, to stamp out any and all dissent. While ill, the power of the council began to erode in favor of the Politburo, known as the Presidium. With Lenin's death, Alexei Rykov became the de jure, or, of by the law, head of the Soviet state on February 2, 1924. Lev Kamenev was supposedly his right-hand man. But in reality, the country was ruled by a troika, three men, Kamenev, Grigory Zinoviev, and Joseph Stalin. This group, of course, was dominated by Stalin as the head of the Politburo of the Communist Party. Now we suspend things at the end of 1924 and the ascension of the Troika to go back to the birth and early days of the man who was to dominate Russia as no man had since the times of Peter the Great. The first dispute we find when discussing the man born Iosef Vizavionovich Drugashvili is the exact date of his birth. The only reason we have a dispute, though, was Stalin's own doing. He had officially celebrated his birthday as starting on December 21, 1879, which he did for political reasons as he built his cult of personality. But according to all the verifiable documentation, including Georgian Orthodox baptismal papers, he was born in Gory, Georgia, on December 18, 1878, to Kedavan Geladze and Basarion Jugashvili, or Keke and Beso for short. Joseph was the third boy born to his parents, but his first two brothers died in infancy. His mother swore to God that if he lived, she would make sure he would become a Russian Orthodox priest. His mother called him Sosolo, or Little Soso, as he grew up in the Russian quarter of town. Because of where he grew up, Soso would be known as the Russian to his Georgian playmates. Did this influence his lack of Georgian nationalism later on in life? Hard to say, but I'm sure it played a role. There were numerous rumors about who the real father of young Joseph was, with one Jewish wine merchant being the leading culprit. His name was Yaakov Ignatsevich. The reason his name was bandied about in the rumor mill 
was because Joseph's mother worked as a maid, laundress, and seamstress for Jewish families, and Yaakov's in particular. Some said that she slept around with the wealthier men in exchange for money and favors when her husband was away in Tiflis, squandering what money he had made as a cobbler on alcohol. Having said that, it is highly unlikely that Joseph was anyone but the son of the alcoholic and abusive man known as Beso. His mother adored the boy, but was quite strict with him. In his book Stalin, author Edvard Radzinski offers this alleged conversation between Stalin and his mother in 1935, as remembered by her doctor, N. Kipshidze. Why did you beat me so hard? Stalin asked his mother. Well, that's why you turned out so well, Keke answered. Joseph, who exactly are you now? His mother asked him. It was difficult to know who her son had become when his portrait was displayed on every street. She was simply inviting him to boast a bit. And he did. Remember the Tsar? Well, I'm like a Tsar. To which she said something so naive that the whole country laughed heartily. You'd have done better to have become a priest. Joseph's father, Beso, was an abusive man, especially when he was drunk, which was pretty much every night he was home. According to Kipshidze, quote, One day when his father was drunk, he picked him up and threw him violently to the floor. There was blood in the boy's urine for days afterward. His parents fought violently throughout his childhood. It was another molding time in young Joseph's life. Over the years, Keke, instead of grabbing her son and running away to the neighbor's house, she fought back. She slowly began to dominate Beso until he could no longer stand it. He left for long periods to Tiflis. When Stalin was in control of the USSR after World War II, his anti-Semitism was notorious. It was as a child that his dislike of Jews was born. He hated the way they treated his mother and him, as though, in his mind, they were lesser people. Stalin would have his revenge. So-so, just seethed in anger. As Radzinski writes in his book, quote, So-so's feelings were reinforced by jealousy and resentment. Insulting gossip about his mother and her visits to the homes of rich Jews made its furtive appearance at this time. This is how anti-Semitic feelings, so alien to the Caucasus, developed in little Soso. His friend Davrashevi remembered his grandmother reading the New Testament to them, the story of Judas's kiss of betrayal. But why didn't Jesus draw his saber, little Soso asked indignantly. He couldn't do that, Grandma answered. He had to sacrifice himself for our salvation. That was something little Soso was incapable of understanding. All through his childhood he had been taught to answer blow with blow. He resolved to do what seemed to be the obvious thing, to take vengeance on the Jews. And even in those days he was a good organizer, but he himself remained behind the scenes for fear of his mother's heavy hand. One typical plan was carried out by little friends. They led a pig into a synagogue. They were found out, but did not give so-so away. Shortly afterward, an Orthodox priest told his parishioners in church, There are those among us, some lost sheep, 
who a few days ago committed a sacrilege in one of God's houses. That was quite beyond Soso's understanding. How could anyone defend people of another faith? When Soso was fourteen, he entered the Gori Church School. While not a seminary, it prepared students for the monastic life. Keke was overjoyed as she believed that this was the path to her son's becoming a good Orthodox priest. David Suliashivli remembered seeing Soso and said, It was a church fast, and three singers sang the penitential prayers. Those with the best voices were always selected, and Soso was always one of these. At Vespers, three boys in surplices chanted the prayers on their knees. The angelic voices of the three children, the golden channel gates were opened. The priest lifted up his hands to heaven, and we prostrated ourselves, filled with an ecstasy not of this world. So-so, the little angelic boy, was to become one of the greatest mass murderers of all time. He would kill more people than all the wars in history to date. But now he was the sweet little So-so. In the four years that So-so would spend at the Gori Church School, he was noted for being an excellent student, but also very defiant. He had a number of physical defects, one of which came about when he was six or twelve, depending on the historical accounts he used, after being hit by a horse-drawn cart. His left arm became atrophied, which he hid later in life by carrying his famous pipe at all times, especially in public. He also had smallpox as a child, which left his face scarred. Little by little, his childhood traumas began to stack up on his psyche. Another incident was to have a large effect on young Soso, the execution by hanging of two peasants. In February of 1892, the church school students were led out to view the public execution because, as they put it, quote, the spectacle of an execution should st instill a feeling of the inevitability of retribution, a dread of transgression, Peter Kapnazi, a friend of Soso, wrote. You know, we were not terribly depressed by the execution. The commandment, thou shalt not kill, did not square with the execution of the two peasants. During the execution, the rope broke, but the men were hanged a second time. As Radzinski questions in his book, was that the when it first occurred to him, so-so, that the church school might be deceiving its pupils? Once he began to suspect it, he could never stop. By 1894, Soso entered the Tiflis Seminary and as, as an exemplary student. The school was a bleak place, which was in contrast to the bustling town of Tiflis. One student writes, We felt like prisoners, forced to spend our young lives in this place, although innocent. While Soso was being taught the way of the Lord, throughout Russia, revolutionary ideas were being spread. One person whose writings certainly influenced Stalin, and perhaps Soso, was Peter Kachev. He believed that a small group of people could pull off a revolution without the help of the popular masses. 
But one idea of his stuck in Stalin slash Soso's mind, that for the wave for socialism to succeed, quote, the majority of the population must be exterminated. Otherwise, as Kachev put it, Russia's backwardness would hinder entry into the socialist paradise. Another pair of influential thinkers was the famous anarchist Mikhail Bakunin and revolutionary socialist Sergei Nechev. Bakunin was the founder of the idea of collectivist anarchism, who believed in revolution in Russia and lived from 1814 to 1876. He despised the Tsarist regime despite coming from a noble family. Nechev was heavily influenced by Bakunin, and it came out in his work, Catechism of a Revolutionary. This particular work was to give young Soso the ideas that were to transform him later in life to Stalin. Nechev believed that the world had to be changed, but not through gradual stages, but by violent revolution and destruction. One particular line was to stick in Soso's mind, which is about allying the revolutionary with criminals to, quote, unite with the savage world of the violent criminal, the only true revolutionary in Russia. Every fully initiated revolutionary must control several revolutions of the second or third category, not fully initiated, whom we must look upon as part of the common capital, placed completely at his disposal. This mindset was to penetrate Stalin's mind, and he would put to use criminal elements in society to gain power or decimate any enemy he perceived to threaten him or his policies. Next time, join me as we weave the tale of the change of the seminarian Soso into the violent revolutionary Joseph Stalin. Today's person of focus is Sergei Gennadievich Nechev, a revolutionary Russian whose deeds and writings helped inspire the Bolshevik movement and the way they dealt with enemies. Born on October 2nd, 1847 in Ivanovna, Russia, to a newly freed serf family. Sergei was, from an early age, a boy who despised what he saw as social inequality in Russian society. His father was a sign painter and a waiter, which irritated the boy as he saw this as an affront to his family. When offered a job as an errand boy, he supposedly said, I won't wipe the boots of those devils. Despite their low standing, the family had Sergei tutored in a number of subjects, including Latin, German, and French. This was to serve him well in the future, as he traveled throughout Europe. By 18, he had traveled to Moscow to continue his education and become a teacher. Within a year, he moved on to St. Petersburg, where he became aware of radical thinkers like Mikhail Bakunin, Chernyshevsky, and Kachev. On April 4, 1866, Dmitry Karakozov made an unsuccessful attempt on the life of Tsar Alexander II at the gates of the Summer Garden in St. Petersburg. This incident inspired Nechev, and despite a ban on student gatherings at St. Petersburg University, where Karakozov studied, Sergei Nechev began to organize fellow revolutionaries. He also met 
Vera Zasulich, who would later assassinate the governor of St. Petersburg, which we covered in one of the podcasts on Alexander III. From here, Necheyev began to slide down mentally, as not only did he concoct a plot to assassinate Alexander II, he began to implicate others in plots against the Tsar, even if they weren't involved, to force them to be arrested and, is, in his mind, become radicalized. Facing arrest, he fled Russia and headed to Geneva, Switzerland, where he met Bakunin and Nikolai Ogarev, who wrote the following poem to Nachiev. He was born to a wretched fate and taught in a hard school and suffered interminable torments and years of unceasing labor. But as the years swept by, his love for the people grew stronger and fiercer his thirst for the common good, the thirst to improve man's fate. The three men began to set up a fund to help revolutionaries in Russia with the help of Alexander Herzen. Echeyev sent out parcels to close to 400 people in Russia that contained revolutionary pamphlets for distribution, with the intent that the people were to be arrested and radicalized. Vera Zazulich received five years of exile due to Necheyev's plan. Then, in 1869, he wrote his work, Catechism of a Revolutionary, where the main theme was, Ends Justify the Means. According to him, A revolutionary is a doomed man. He has no private interests, no affairs, sentiments, ties, property, or even a name of his own. His entire being is devoured by one purpose, one thought, one passion. The revolution, heart and soul, not merely by word but by deed, he has severed every link with the social order and with the entire civilized world. With the laws, good manners, conventions, and morality of that world, he is its merciless enemy and continues to inhabit it with only one purpose, to destroy it. A revolutionary Quote, must infiltrate all social formations, including the police. He must exploit rich and influential people, subordinating them to himself. He must aggravate the miseries of the common people so as to exhaust their patience and incite them to rebel. And finally, he must ally himself with the savage world of the violent criminal, the only true revolutionary in Russia. His book inspired many, many revolutionaries for over a century, including the Black Panthers in the U.S. and the Red Brigades in Italy in 1969. But the major influence was on Lenin and Stalin, especially the latter. Mechev returned to Moscow in 1869, but had to leave shortly thereafter because of his joining in on the murder of I.I. I. Ivanov, a fellow revolutionary who had a disagreement with Necheyev. Fleeing first to St. Petersburg and back to Geneva, Sergei's paranoia now started to grip his mind as he saw conspiracies around every corner and became suspicious of those around him. He was stealing letters from friends like Bakunin and Agarev to blackmail them. These and other actions like that caused him to be more and more isolated from the radicals of Geneva. 
On August 14, 1872, Necheyev was arrested by Swiss police and handed over to the Russians. On August 14, 1872, Necheyev was arrested by Swiss police and handed over to the Russians. By 1873, he was found guilty of killing Ivanov and sentenced to 20 years of hard labor. Vera Zazulich, his old love, heard of his imprisonment and shot the head of St. Petersburg police, General Trepov, whom she blamed for Necheyev's mistreatment. She was found not guilty due to her supposed noble intent. On December 3, 1882, Sergei Gennadyevich Necheyev died in his prison cell, a broken man. His influence on revolutionary thought was secure. His theories of the way revolution was to be won would doom hundreds of thousands, nay, millions of people, in the hands of Joseph Stalin in the 30s and 40s. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please visit us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, where you can leave a message, make a suggestion, or ask a question. And now, as always, Das Vidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya.